As England goes into a national lockdown and Scotland gets to grips with its new tiers of restrictions, it can feel like we're going backwards in both a health and economic sense. In this special COVID-focused episode of the podcast, I will explore the issues we face with three key people working on Scotland, the recovery. So we're seven months into this pandemic that has been frankly devastating for us all. And for government, that has meant facing up to the two competing issues of a health emergency and an economic crisis. To discuss the impact of this with me today, I've got three people who are in their very different roles, have been and continue to be at the fore of trying to square that very difficult circle. Professor Jason Leach, who's the Scottish Government's clinical director and, if you like, has become the face of COVID. Benny Higgins, who's the former CEO of Tesco Retail Bank and who was charged by the First Minister to draw up our first response to the economic recovery post-COVID, during COVID. And Jim McNair, who's the business development director for Lidos in Scotland, which, as a global technology company that works with so many of Scotland's public services, has been at the cutting edge of getting the country back up and running, pivoting us all to working from home and vitally ensuring that those services continue to go smoothly. And on that particular note, Jason is actually currently in meetings with the Deputy First Minister and the local government leaders to discuss next steps and to discuss how we keep services running. I'm told he'll join us shortly, so we'll start. And uh, knowing Jason, when he arrives, he'll make sure he gets his tuppence worth in quickly. So I'll turn to you first, Benny. Um, And really, this health crisis forced very radical and fast behavioural change, which obviously had that immediate economic impact. And I wonder, when the First Minister called you to ask you to look at how to rebuild an economy ravaged by a virus that we knew so little about and didn't know how long it might last, did you just think about thanking her for the call and politely hanging up and walking away? Uh, Well, maybe I should have, but... I did exactly what I'd done when I got a call in the the autumn of 2017 when she asked me if I would draw up a plan for a Scottish National Investment Bank, which I'm delighted to say should open its doors quite soon. And I said yes without really understanding what I was being asked to do. And perhaps I did the same again this time. Uh, But having keen interest in the future of our country, it felt that it was a chance to pull together um, you know, a, a number of people who could make the right kind of contribution. So it, it was actually, a, I felt an honour to be asked to do it and and uh, it was very stimulating work. But where, where on earth do you start and, and what could you draw on to think, what do I do? When even when we're all struggling with what on earth is this virus? Yeah, I, I think the first thing you've got to do is go back to first principles. And, 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 and the first place I looked was pre-COVID. So... The question I asked myself and asked of those around me was, what did we face back in February? And what we faced was low, steady economic growth and full employment, which inexorably points towards low productivity, a narrow export base, um, demographic challenges that were above average, if you like, in terms of what countries around the world are facing. And of course, the opportunities and challenges that come with a green transition, the fourth industrial revolution. And we know, certainly those of us of a certain age in Scotland, that this nation, when it faces an industrial transition, is very much at risk, as happened to us in the 80s. Um, and, of course, Brexit's not gone away. Of course, when we talked before about this, I mean, you talked very much um 
quite passionately about the need to not lose a generation as we had done in the 80s. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Mandy. I mean, I, I think that the two things that, that we concluded as a group uh, that had changed since the crisis were, number one, we had gone from just simply trying to create, I say simply, nothing simple, a robust well-being economy to one that was also resilient. Um, and the three dominant features of the new starting point in the country are focused on inequality, education and unemployment. Um, inequality has been exposed during this crisis and education has come to the fore as being, I think, one of the most important things we can get right to ensure that Scotland is strong in future. And unemployment, I'm afraid, is going to be a very serious issue. And if you look through those three areas of focus, inequality, education and unemployment, I'm afraid to say that people, young people in the sort of 16 to 25, 26-year-old age cohort are very vulnerable and they don't deserve it. So it's absolutely essential that we take the right steps to ensure that we shelter these young people. They deserve shelter in these circumstances. Jim, one of the things that um, Benny highlighted there and within the report were, were the inequities, I guess, that were very sharply put into focus by the pandemic. And there was a particular statistic that he quoted um, about 90% of the top 50% of earners were well connected in terms of digital connectivity and the use of digital. And 90% of the lowest 50% were not. Is that something that concerned you as somebody involved in the business? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think the impact of um, COVID on um, the the population in Scotland and I guess the economy of Scotland um, has has been a challenge. And I think that inequality where um, people in professions that that have access to those technologies um, can go on with life relatively normally Whereas people who who don't want to work in those sectors and, and don't have that um, experience and that uh, that knowledge uh, are there, then excluded from from re- remaining and, and um, uh, having a, a normal or as much as possible normal um, way of working and, uh, and living. Um, fortunately, I think the Scottish government and one of the successes out of the response to the pandemic. Um, was the uh, Connecting Scotland program, which um, provided um, those people that were not able to access um, services over digital channels um, access to um, technology and connectivity so they, they could do. And I think that was one of the successes out of the, uh, out of the response to um, the, the pandemic and how the Scottish Government um, um, assisted access across the, the in, entire population of Scotland. And, and Lydos was, was proud to support that, uh, that initiative and, and help it get off the ground. I mean, clearly, when you're dealing with a virus where reducing human contact becomes a key objective in stopping the spread of that, the the obvious solution about people working from home uh, and using digital in terms of being able to connect with everybody else became vitally important. What what kind of challenges did that immediately give you, Jim? So I think from a from a business level, we we certainly were able, uh, fortunately, to to move to a a remote and home working um, operation. I and I think we've we we've responded and supported our customers relatively effective, uh, effectively in, in doing that. I think what has occurred is that a lot of the um, softer elements of 
of having employees in a single work workplace where you interact, you exchange knowledge informally, and and you can work together around specific um, problems in a in a team scenario. Those softer factors are the elements that have been lost as part of the the the, the reality of of uh, the the working population working from home, and especially when engaging our customers. So obviously, the technology that we use um, has uh, has helped to bridge some of those gaps, but but certainly those are elements. Um, for the future of how um, people work in Scotland and around the world um, post-pandemic, we need to consider how to bridge some of those gaps if um, if either working remotely or changing in working practices um, become apparent as a result of the pandemic. I think, Benny, for all of us, um, that's been the, the biggest and most obvious change, obviously, apart from being apart from loved ones. But working from home has had huge challenges and you know while you're working on this kind of bigger project of looking at the economy and how you help it recover how have you dealt with the technology issues just even on a personal level yeah it's it's a good question mandy you know i i'm also involved as you know with the number of other organizations i'm executive chairman of the clue which is a diversified business that has commercial property uh, rural estates agriculture um, forestry and a number of other things. I'm also, just to take two, another two examples to make my point, I'm chairman of the National Galleries of Scotland and I'm chairman of Sistema Scotland, which is a wonderful charity that takes music into disadvantaged areas. And maybe to start with the last one first, Sistema Scotland is all about personal relationships between the musicians and these kids um, that, that are so deserving and, and benefit so much from what, what the, the charity does. At, this, at the outset of, of this pandemic, you know, one could not but fear what the impact would be. But what I would say is the, res- the response from everybody within the system of the musicians and those who lead the charity has been extraordinary. And the adaptability that people have shown there, shown in the National Galleries of Scotland and indeed in the Clue, um, I could never have expected people to have, who have, to have adapted so brilliantly um, with, with something we'd never faced before. But I do feel as though, similarly, people are both used to and becoming maybe a bit tired of it. I think there's also an issue that dealing with people you don't know is much more difficult uh, compared to dealing with people you you do know. And so over time, I think that starts to show a degree of strain. And and going back to the point we were making earlier around uh, digital infrastructure, you know, I've spent the majority of the the period since, since March in the Scottish borders, and I've faced my own share of, you know, um, problems with Wi-Fi and so on. And there's no doubt that a resilient Scotland will need to enable people across the country to work more comfortably from home when when it is possible. So I think there's there's a lot to do. That's an interesting point, Jim, isn't it? Because um, in the rush, if you like, to get us all connected... There may be a feeling that, we've, well, we've got there. People now know how to use the technology um, and they know how to work from home. But actually, you may have picked up bad habits. You may not understand exactly what you're doing. And to that point that Benny makes about it's fine if you already have the familiarity with colleagues. But what about new people coming in? How do we get over these issues? Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that, Mandy, and I, and I think there's there's probably two ele- elements to that. I think, um, in the in the sense of how an organisation and and society as a whole reacts and develops mechanisms to to onboard new members of staff, um, 
in a in a COVID in a, in a lockdown scenario. Um, obviously, those those elements um, are harder to achieve when they're remote and harder to make that person or, or individual feel like a member of the team and feel like a belonging in the organization. So certainly our organization has worked very hard to make sure that our communities are practiced, make sure our engagement with, with our staff is, is very proactive and ensuring when new staff are, are coming on board that they are, they're inducted to the organization as much as possible, even though that's across um, virtual and, and, and digital channels. Um, in terms of how um, we support and, and kind of the, the behaviors that we pick up in terms of um, responding to, to working from home, as, as you rightly point out, we're all very apt at picking up the good habits and the bad habits. And I think from, from the general working population's perspective, I think people work a lot harder and more consistently, consistently over the, the working week um, because they are tied to their desks and everyone knows where, where they are. And, and again, some of the elements that we've tried to bring into the organization are virtual coffee breaks and informal chats and encouraging our staff to, to break up their day so that they're not essentially at their desk um, from nine till five every day. And, and they almost get a bit work, work weary to, to, to sitting doing the same thing over and over again. I think um, when I interviewed the Economy Secretary, Fiona Hislop, we talked about if you can find a silver lining in such a, a dreadful situation that we've, we're in, hers would have been that we were kind of getting to a place with the economy, if you like, and how we work anyway, and this has helped accelerate it. I mean, Benny, would you would you agree with that? Would you feel that that, that is perhaps something that's happened? We've just accelerated the journey that we were on anyway. Yeah, I think that there is certainly a case that can be made that in a number of spheres, we've accelerated paths we were on uh, rather than changed direction. But I would be fearful that after that initial um, sort of period of crisis, acting as a catalyst that things could slow down again. So, for example, in our uh, economic recovery recommendations, we talked about tackling kind of the regulatory framework to enable perhaps things that take too long to happen more readily, whether it be offshore wind or, or, or something else, or even in the sphere, the sphere of uh, um, in, in digital um, infrastructure. And I, I just worry that people get used to a crisis like this in a way, and that the good stuff starts to dissipate and you're left with the negatives. So I, I wouldn't, I, I find it hard to talk too much about a silver lining. I think there were examples, you, we certainly saw it in the National Health um, Service where in NHS Scotland and elsewhere, things happened at a rate that it was unprecedented. But, but you know, I, I'd be fearful that they end up being old stories of what happened in that first few weeks. Um, uh, and and we, we lose the impetus. Yeah, and actually, far be it for me to try and put words in Jason Leach's mouth, but when we talked about behavioural change in the past, it seemed at the beginning that, um, just to pick up, I guess, on what you're saying there, Benny, is that there was this great feeling of, of um, solidarity and we were all working together against this adversity. And then, and then we've seen people get a bit fed up and perhaps acting more selfishly. Um, and it's it's trying to pull out some of the good bits, I guess, that we've, we've seen from people in all of this. I mean, Jim, in terms of public services and how people see those being delivered, 
do you feel that there is a difference in how people feel anymore about community and collective working? Yeah, I think um, I think potentially that there is, and 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 I think um, with every crisis and challenge it brings opportunity and I think picking up on Benny's point there a little bit um, change for change sake um, is not necessarily a good thing and 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 maybe we do become a little bit weary about the the um, good things that happened in in a in a difficult time um, and and we revert back to to old habits and old behaviors so it's trying to to I guess take the the good things that have come out of a crisis situation um, while retaining the rigor and the and the good practice and all the all the processes that are, that are there for for the protection of the, the population and the, and the development of the economy and I think you know in terms of the digital technologies uh, you know I actually think um, the, the services of the Scottish government and the UK government have provided have um, been fairly resilient um, in the uh, in the COVID crisis, and the majority of services have um, stood up to the to the test of either staff working digitally or providing services to to um, citizens um, via digital channels or other means have stood up very well. I think that leads to a potential opportunity to continue and, and evolving those services and certainly digital technologies um, can be deployed very quickly and have been proven to do so in, in the public sector. I think the challenge is then um, in terms of how rapidly they can, can be adopted and enabled while not leaving behind those different elements of um, society, society, whether that's geographic or socioeconomic, so that they can still access services effectively as you go forward. So I think the the opportunity that uh, the, the the crisis has given is that um, everyone is probably more used to using digital technologies, and therefore their their adoption of digital services um, can happen more quickly. I think the risk um, is to ensure that we we don't paint a one size fits all kind of approach to to everyone and assume that they can all access those digital services when we return to some state of norm- normality, and making sure that all elements of society are engaged. Hi, folks. Sorry, I'm late. Don't worry. We know you're a busy man, shutting us all down. It's uh, it's slightly more hectic than my normal job was in peacetime, but here we are. <laughs> I basically wanted to ask you if you could cast your mind back seven months ago when this all started and how you felt personally as a public health professional. What did you think we were facing? Did you think anything about timescale or what this could mean for people on a personal level? It's a very interesting question, Mandy, and you're, you're told not to answer questions with that sentence, but it, it genuinely is. We, we, we knew because the WHO have a thing, they have a committee that rings a bell called a global public health emergency. They've only done it six times in the modern era. It, in, in my time in this job, they've only done it three times. And one of them was Ebola. So, so we know what to do when the bell rings. We, we go to the wall and we take down the pandemic plan and we phone the health minister and 194 countries roughly do the same thing. And we, we uh, plan, we look at what the infectious agent is, we activate our public health community. Ebola, though, it infected 30,000 people and killed about 11,000 people. It's a horrible disease, but it kills a third of those who get it. But globally, it infected 30,000. This one has now infected 40 million people. Nobody has lived through this unless you happened to be alive in 1918. So, so nobody in December, January or February, despite what they may say now, predicted what this would be. 
So, so I didn't either. It, it was impossible to predict. I, I knew along with my colleagues that we needed to activate some form of pandemic planning. And as we learned more, that planning accelerated. But hasn't this, isn't this something that you rehearse for all your professional life? It, at some level you do, but it's such an extreme event that you can only rehearse to some level. And the most likely infectious agent to cause a global pandemic was an influenza virus by, by a factor of hundreds. So when you get a novel coronavirus that is by its nature novel, and nobody knew it existed. In fact, it didn't exist until probably December. And it, you don't know what it does to people. Remember, we know what flu does. We know roughly how many flu kills and what the risk groups are and how to test for it and how to vaccinate against it, even though it changes and runs ahead of us every year. We didn't know, nobody did, what this coronavirus did. So did it affect thin people or big people? Did it affect people with heart failure or people with diabetes? Did it affect people with MND or epilepsy? Or did it only affect those with respiratory disease? Nobody knew any of that. So you've got, so you're, you, you're at a different starting point than you are with flu, where you have a known viral agent that you can at least begin to think about what you might do against it. So every day, there are thousands of articles published about COVID, and every one of them helps us learn more about it, about what it does in kids, about how it transmits, about how the testing should be, about who you should protect. And that is layer upon layer upon layer of evidence that, that you simply didn't have when one guy in Wuhan caught a novel coronavirus. I mean, very quickly, despite not knowing about it, the government obviously had to act. So there was clearly a health crisis. And Benny has then run us through what that the immediate economic crisis was starting to look like and how quickly the Scottish government engaged him on looking at an economic recovery plan. Did you have to take into account at all in your thinking, what will this do to the economy? Of course. And we, we very quickly established what has now become known as the four harms. And the four harms are, of course, just a framework, a model, a lens through which to look at this pandemic. But they are harm from COVID, direct harm, death, destruction, misery, grief, and long COVID, chronic disease. The health and social care implications of adjusting for COVID, so longer waiting times, eh, adjusting outpatient clinics. The economic harms, which Benny is the expert on, not, not me. And then the society harms, the loneliness, the mental health, the stopping people going to their places of worship, all, all of those other elements. So all of them have public health implications. But what you have to do as a public health leader is you have to try and limit harm one, the harm from COVID, while mitigating the other harms. The harms are not all equal. You have to try and do them all at the same time. And it's not trade-offs. People, people think about it in the wrong way. The, the worst thing for the economy is to let COVID rage. So if you let COVID out, your hospitals will, will be overwhelmed. Everybody will be off their work. It will be absolutely horrific. And the economy will suffer more. So you have to tread this tightrope between managing the disease managing the misery of the disease, and at the same time, doing what you can to mitigate against those other harms. One of the most 
obvious things for everybody was an immediate almost working from home. And clearly, um, as we, Jim has led us through a whole series of things about how technology aided um, people doing that. For you, had there not been the ability to utilise technology to work from home, do you think we would have been in a very different place? Yeah, for for sure. Some somebody cleverer than me who wrote uh, an article. Of, it's now a number of months old. He called it the hammer and the, the dance, and the only treatment that the public health community had available globally, 194 countries, was the hammer. We, we literally did not know what else to do, so we had to shut down societies. We had to put everybody in their homes, and work and leisure are the two fundamental subdivisions of that home. So so. If you put everybody at home during their working hours, that's one element of your plan. And then you have to try and keep everybody home during their leisure hours and let them out for care, for food, for exercise. And in those days, that's all you were allowed to leave for. And that was true in France, in Florida, in New York, in Canada, and in Scotland. Now we're in what he describes as the dance as we try to trade that. I'm mixing my metaphors here. As we try to trade that tightrope. To, to, to try and find a way to let people out more for work, more for leisure, but at the same time keep the virus at bay. And that, that's much, much harder than the 23rd of March lockdown. That, that's easy public health advice. It's misery, but it's easy advice. I mean, I guess when, you know, you had yourself, Jason, working on the health crisis, you've got the likes of Benny working on the economic crisis. For you, Jim, you're having to think, well, how do we use what we've been working on all our business lives to develop to actually make life easier for people that are in lockdown? Yeah, I think absolutely, Mandy, that I guess coming from the business vein, that latent um, capability that possibly had been underutilized came came to the fore in in lockdown both from a enabling people our employees and i guess our customers and, and those in the public sector to to be able to to work remotely fortunately in the most part that that worked very effectively so so i think that that latent capability um provided great uh, great ability to for the for the for the society to be able to work effectively i think as jason touched on there on the on the leisure side um that is probably the harder bit where um i guess from people who are working from home and back to that four harms of social harm that the challenge is is how do you get that social interaction and how do you um, keep up your community and your engagement with activities? And, and again, some of those technologies that are now um, pervasive across everyone's um, dialect, like Zoom calls and, um, oh, you're still on mute as the favorite comment of the year, I think. You know, everyone has has used those technologies to, to enable um, greater interaction, both from a work and from a, from a leisure perspective as well. It was my, uh, Mandy, it was my, it was my birthday at the weekend and... Uh... I had I had afternoon tea with my family via Zoom. Now there's there's all kinds of pandemic industries that had to come together to get me afternoon tea with Zoom with my family. I mean, I, I don't think takeaway afternoon tea was available pre-pandemic. I had never seen it. So so I sent afternoon tea to two other families, to two other households, and then we connected two 79-year-olds, my my parents, over Zoom. At the dining room table, my sister and her husband at their on their sofa, and us. So, so it it's not the same. Of course, it's not. 
it's not the same as hugging and having the actual birthday cake in the room, but but it, I I can't imagine how difficult it must have been. Imagine if if you were in 1918 with no way of even communicating with one another hardly to to try and live through this level of disruption of restriction and everything. So I, I think the the digital leisure elements as well as the digital professional elements, the workforce elements, how we've how we've moved a lot of the health service online, etc., have been absolutely crucial in our response. I suppose, um, and you know, Jason, you and I have talked about this before, one of the positives, if you can pull anything positive out of this, has been you've seen how behavioural change and compliance can work in a public health setting. And surely that must bode well for the future when you're trying to give public health messages that might be difficult. And we've, we've learned, I think, how to get better at that. The, the, the public all over the world have, have responded both culturally to their individual cultures, and, and not every response has been the same. So a, a, lot of, a lot of people have said Sweden did lock down. Well, I can tell you, when you speak to the chief executive of the Swedish health system, he said, yes, of course we locked down. We just did it voluntarily because we're Swedes. So each, so each country does it slightly differently, but you have to adapt to your culture. And pretty much every culture has it followed the restrictions, has understood the nature of public health being not about your disease just affecting you. So if you have an ingrowing toenail, I really don't care. I care for you as an individual, but it doesn't affect me. But if you have COVID or you are infected with COVID, then that does affect me. So therefore, we have to we have to behave as a community in order to restrict COVID. And I think books will be written on that on that element of the public health response for for a long, long time to come. And, and interestingly, there's been many buzzwords that have flown about um, during this pandemic. Pivoting being one, um, but you mentioned resilience, and resilience is going to be the thing that matters, presumably, to all communities going forward. I mean, Benny. Given, I guess, the unique position you've had um, in really having to dig down into how an economy could recover from this, do you think we're resilient? Do you see that? I don't think we are resilient. I mean, I think, that, but I don't think many countries um, have demonstrated great resilience in, in this particular crisis. Of course, there's also a kind of general feeling that one is often prepared for the last crisis and not the next one. And the next crisis might be another pathogen. It could be a cyber-based attack or it, it could be um, climate-related. And the question is, are we going to be better prepared next time? Are we going to think harder about resilience? But this does bring us to what is really at the heart of whether or not we will come through as quickly as we can and, and become stronger and build back better, as the cliche goes. And it's about leadership. Um, and I think leadership and its relationship with truth matters hugely in a crisis and its re- and the recovery from the crisis. I, I do believe that those who have handled the health crisis best have had a very strong relationship with the truth. But the calculus of how we deal with the moving parts, as you said at the outset, Mandy, of the economic position, the health crisis, and perhaps adding another one, social justice, because as we've all agreed, inequality has been exposed, is a complex backdrop for leadership. But there is never going to be a time in our lives when leadership at all levels 
will matter most and it's a very special kind of leadership we need. Do you feel confident that we have that leadership in Scotland? You've been up close to it. Yeah, I'm a, I'm, I'm a big fan of how the uh, First Minister's dealt with the health crisis. I think her um, she has got a natural empathy with dealing with a crisis of this nature. Uh, I think her mind is always on social justice. I think the challenge will be how do we incorporate the kind of behaviours that will bring about economic recovery that will be robust and resilient. I think it does require um, a level of working across our society that has not really been evident in Scotland in recent times. And I don't think it's a one-sided um, criticism. I, I do believe that business, the subsector, government has to find ways to work together to make this an opportunity to build back better, an opportunity to build a better well-being Scotland. Um, and, you know, as a small, well-developed economy, we are kind of uniquely placed, as others of a similar scale are, to do this well. I don't think we do it well. But if there ever has been a time to do it well, it's now. Jason, do you see a different kind of normal for the future? Somebody described it to me recently as the next normal rather than the new normal, which I think is probably better language. I, I don't think there's going to be a Tuesday night when we're when this is over. I, I don't think we're suddenly going to wake up one day and think, well, thank heavens that's done. I think it's going to be much more gradual. We're going to, we hope, vaccinate the population of the world gradually, but you can't do that in a day. That has to be over time. So we will, as we've gone in, we will come out. And I think some elements of what has happened will stay. I think it's much more likely you will have digital GP appointments, digital outpatient appointments as one of the options for your health service appointments. I think more people will work from home than pre-pandemic worked from home. But, but I also think we will hold on to, I hope, some of the community elements. So some of the mosques that have been making lunches for their elderly neighbours, I think will continue to do that. I think the food bank at some churches will probably be maintained. The schools will be slightly more community focused than perhaps they've been in the past. So I, I hope it, inside this horrid, horrid infection that some of those elements will be maintained. That's interesting, Jim, isn't it? Because public service and public service delivery clearly has changed during this period. Is that the future you see too? Yes, and I think, um, as, as Jason had touched on, things like GP appointments, doing those digitally, um, certainly the, the comment I had back from my local GP is that they can, they can arrange appointments in a day now, whereas you'd be waiting you know, possibly up to a week for, a, for a, a simple appointment. So obviously that is an advantage. And I think in, in other areas of both um, technology application and, and also, I guess, public support, there are opportunities to, to drive and enable better uh, and improve services. Now everyone is is kind of forced to be comfortable with using digital and remote technologies to to access those services. And and I think there is an opportunity there in the future to drive more efficiency and more effectiveness of of how the public sector engages with uh, with communities and with society. Um, but I think back to the the discussion we had earlier. Actually, when it comes to the social interaction. Um, the new normal or the next normal will make people appreciate the social interactions more so and make that 
that time more important and, and making the best out of uh, of the social interaction we we are allowed in the in the post-pandemic phase what have the last seven months in this kind of unprecedented time taught you about yourself benny yeah i think it's it's made me um reassess what matters most um who i want to spend time with what um how you know to be in the borders is i've, I've since i've you know, bought a house in the borders ten years ago. I've, I, I, you know, I loved it, but actually, I kind of fell completely in love with it because I felt so lucky to have space, um, to be in an environment where I wasn't, you know, having to put myself particularly at risk. I felt extraordinarily lucky. Um, but, but I, I've also, had, you know, I, I'm, I'm an avid reader, and actually, during the first three or four months of, of lockdown, I, I, I didn't read. Um, very much at all, which I found entirely surprising. Um, so I think it's, it's certainly been a period of introspection and reevaluating, you know, your own sort of priorities. Um, and I, I, I'm not. I think I'll I'll probably be able to answer that question better further down the line because I feel as though I'm still in the midst of the very question you're asking. It's true, Jim. What about you? Yeah, I think very much the same as as Benny in terms of that, um, you know, slight separation from a society makes you appreciate the things that you have. Um, and I think, uh, you know, one of the great things is that um, you, you got to know your community a lot better. You, you got to develop local connections because you, you couldn't travel to work, you couldn't fly down to London, you, you couldn't do all the things that you normally would do. And I think actually as a result of um, of the restrictions and as a as a result of the the response to 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 covid from from my perspective it it brought home what was important to you but it also brought home a sense of community and a sense of localism that 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 is important in a digital age i mean jason in the last seven months you've gone from being almost an unknown what? <laughs> to to what? being to being the face of COVID in Scotland. I mean, what, have you had time to think about the impact that this has had personally on you? And what have you learned about yourself? Sometimes, I mean, it, the, I've never known pace like it, except when I was a junior surgeon training and working uh, incredibly long hours in the good old days of the National Health Service junior surgeon hours. I've never worked harder. I'm also very conscious that I have some privileges. I have purpose. I have a job that that is uh, both stimulating and uh, relatively important. And I have a salary. And some people are working longer hours in intensive care and care homes, and it's tougher. And some people, I'm deeply sorry to say, have lost their jobs and lost their businesses because of this virus. And, and because of how we have had to react to it. So, so I'm not naive enough to think that I don't have privilege. But inside that it is, is a cost, a cost of time with your family, a cost of some abuse uh, online and some real nasty threats online. But I, I've got a relatively thick skin. I can ignore most of it. As I've disguise, described to you before, I think, Mandy, the only, the only ones that really bother me are the ones that uh, suggest my motives are bad that in some way I am deliberately trying to harm people. And that, that couldn't be further from the truth. I, I don't mind disagreement or misunderstanding or any of those elements. Of course, that's completely legitimate. And that's one of the things the media should do. It, but but when, it, when it 
it reverts on an individual level to to personal abuse or threat. I, I find that a wee bit difficult to to understand. And and social media lends itself to that kind of anonymity, unfortunately. But mu- much of it has been joyous. I had a I had a a, a funny interaction the other day. I, I run most days to try and uh, stay mentally well, frankly. And I stopped just at my gate, and a couple of middle-aged women came up to me and told, said you were that how wonderful I was and how great a job I was doing, and they were so grateful for saving lives, and it was fantastic. And I was kind of glowing in the in the joy of it. And as they walked away, one of them said, "Thank you so much, Gregor." I thought, "Oh, for heaven's <laughs> sake!" So they had got me mixed up with the chief medical officer, and he had been doing a fantastic job, which is also true, of course, but it did make me laugh. Joking aside, these can feel like pretty grim times. I hope you've found this special COVID episode of the podcast thought-provoking, and I look forward to hearing your comments and suggestions for future editions. Next week, it's back to the usual political ramblings and nonsense between Liam Kirkcaldy and I, and with the results of the US election in by then, I'm sure there'll be plenty to talk about. 